Welcome to the Airy Wellbeing Podcast, where we explore all things mental health, well-being, and healing through the lens of our own experiences as Black people and children of Eritrean immigrants. Our goal is to normalize the mental health conversation in our community, empower and raise awareness so that you can better understand your mental health from a place of curiosity and compassion. We are your hosts. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Miki. And we're so happy that you're here with us. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Airy Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Ruthie and I am the host of this podcast today. We um, really want to thank you all for listening to our last episode in Tigrinyat. So that's episode number three uh, with Dr. Jakob Tekie. Um, we've had over um, 650 plays so far in counting. So we're so grateful for all of you taking your time and listening. And we're just really happy that the episode in Tigrinya really resonated with you. We've heard from so many of you that you've shared it with your parents, with your cousins, community groups, and that it's been like really valuable to have something in Tigrinya. And that was our intention exactly, to be able to invite into this conversations our parents and family members that feel more comfortable to express themselves uh, in Tigrinya. And we hope to do and more episodes like this in the future. And a big thank you obviously goes out to Dr. Jakob Tekie, who is like a fantastic translator between um, both cultures. And uh, we really appreciate him taking his time to kind of teach us the terminology and um, kind of reconcile both perspectives. Um, so please keep sharing it if you can and invite more people from our community to this mental health conversation. And again, we really appreciate all of you for taking your time to um, listen and share. So for today, we have a very special guest on here. Her name is Eretra Gebrehiwet. We um, connected with Eretra via the Airy Wellbeing community page on Instagram. And we noticed the very important work that she does to raise mental health awareness. So we wanted to bring her on this show so she could share her story. Um, Every well-being is at its core about normalizing the conversation about mental health in the Eritrean, Ethiopian community, and in general um, for people of color or African descent. So it's really important for us to be able to involve you guys in this conversation. So we thought it would be a really great idea to bring Eritra on the podcast to tell us about her experience, and also talk about an aspect of mental health that is very close to her heart. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Eritra Gebrihiwet. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Ruthie. Good, welcome. How are you today? Uh, nervous, but good. <laughs> <laughs> no need to be nervous. Um, but we're really excited to, to have you here and just wanted to thank you for your openness and willingness to share, because I think this conversation is going to be helpful for a lot of people. And you have not, you and I have obviously had a chat before, so I know uh, some of your um, kind of background and story, but I thought it might, it might be good for our listeners to get an idea of sort of where and how your story started. So um, where does your origin story start and where were you born? Uh, okay, so so first of all, thank you for having this platform. Um, so I was born in Eritrea, uh, Asmara specifically, in 1991. And then my family and I immigrated to Indianapolis, Indiana in 1997. So I came to the States when I was six years old, um, went to grade school um, and college in Indiana. And so that that's my whole life is basically in Indiana, and I, I'm i very, like, family person, family-oriented, you know, love the culture, appreciate it, but, you know, as I got older, I had my own experiences and my own um, ways of dealing with things that didn't make sense, but as far as my memory concerned me, I know it was in middle school that I started to notice, like, different things about me, like, I sweated a lot, and my voice gets, gets shaky. I hated being called on in class and like I was friends with everybody, loved everybody. But like when there was spotlight on me, I noticed like I just sweated a lot and my voice got shaky and just uncomfortable sens sensations. I, I don't remember what I was thinking. 
but these mm-hmm. uncomfortable sensations are very vivid for me um, as early as, as middle school. Um, and so, and that continued throughout high school and college and it just kept getting worse and worse. And I just kind of was like, okay, maybe I'm just a nervous person. You know, I didn't think mm-hmm. much of it. I just thought I'm, I'm nervous. That's okay. Um, so I just kind of figured out what, how to kind of like hide that. So putting, I don't know, paper towels under my armpits or having to change outfits often. I just thought, okay, this is normal. I'm just a teenager going through puberty or something like that. You know, I had no idea. Um, so then it got really bad um, post-college. Like thankfully in college, I didn't really like get into like heavy drinking or, you know, drug abuse or anything like that. But post-college is when it got worse for me. Um, so then not knowing what I was dealing with, <clears throat> I ended up um, coping with it through um, substance abuse. So alcoholism, like I had, a, I had a very high tolerance for alcohol, as small as I am. And so because I didn't know what it was, because I couldn't name it, because I knew what made me uncomfortable, but didn't know what else to do about it, I just found unhealthy ways to cope with it. And what, what would you say that you were dealing with at this point? Sorry to interrupt you, but oh, what would okay. you say that, just to clarify? Oh, what, I mean, as of, as of right now? Like, no, do you have when you were kind of like in college and so on you were you were, you were saying that you, you were you found some some coping mechanisms and um, what what were you trying to help yourself to cope from um the uncomfortable physical sensations I was feeling the sweating mm-hmm. my voice shaking um and and I know the whole overthinking stuff I know that's I just can't remember when it started but I know I was more aware of it in college um so just trying to trying to deal with these uncomfortable feelings um, and co- uncomfortable thoughts. Um, that's, that's what I was trying to like deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does, does that answer? Uh, absolutely. And okay. if we kind of try to hit the topic of mental health a bit more head on, so what would you say that your experience, which your personal experience with mental health? So that, so that was the beginning mm-hmm. with kind of these different symptoms. At, w- at what point did you become aware that it uh, might be something tangible, you know, that you could address? Honestly, like this year, maybe like, mm-hmm. maybe a few months ago, my goodness. I mean, it's a revelation to me to admit that, but really like this year, I knew like, okay, maybe I am anxious. Like I started putting a name to it like this year, um, yeah. but really realizing, oh my gosh, I have social anxiety. Um, I'm not diagnosed, but I know I have social anxiety this year like a couple months ago Mm. so it's it's crazy no I mean it's 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 really interesting and then considering that like I've had a similar experience as well where I went through something and then didn't realize until a long time afterwards that oh wow that that was depression you know Mm -hmm. so I can totally relate to where you're you're coming from and I'm interested to know like what how did you sort of so you, you, you found a way to cope or perhaps even to numb some of those sensations and excessive thoughts and so on. And um, how did you identify them? Did they ever become conscious to you? Um, what exactly? Sorry. Like, did, when, as you were like experiencing some of these like bodily sensations, um, excessive thoughts and so on, did you, did you consciously think of them as negative or were you just trying to push them down through like numbing and so on? Oh, I definitely knew it was negative because Mm. I'm not, well, I don't want to say I'm natural overthinker. I think that's just the anxiety part, but because I always have lots of questions and I'm very curious, I I started to confuse the overthinking with curiosity before Mm. I was able to put a name to it. But then when I started to see like, what is wrong in my life? I mean, I have, you know, what I need, I have, the support that I need so why am I being so negative all the time in my mind why does everything I don't know in my like outward appearance everything is, looks great and I can I kept up in that but in my mind it was always so negative and so dark and so I confused curiosity with overthinking mm-hmm. um but then at a certain point when other life pressures were getting to me that overthinking that negativity was just exact like it just grew worse and so I'm like no this is not normal like this is not normal at all this is overwhelming and um you know it led to like suicide ideation and suicide attempts and stuff and that's when I knew okay like something is really wrong let me just find somebody I'm close with that I so I don't feel alone but I never really addressed it so if that answers your question I hope yeah 
Absolutely. And I'm interested to know, like, what difference did it make to you to be able to understand what those thoughts were and to, like, find words for them? Like, for instance, you said suicidal ideation. Like, like what impact did that have on you? Um, it made me feel like, okay, something is not utterly wrong with me. Like, some, like some, I have some problems and issues to work with, which I don't have a problem with the word problem or issues or, you know, I'm... Mm-hmm. I'm I've come to term with that it, because it doesn't mean that I'm unworthy. It doesn't mean like that I'm a mistake or that, that, you know, I did something wrong in my life to bring me to this point. So I'm just done, you know, for good. So when I came to terms, like, okay, all these thoughts I'm having where I can't figure out what's going on with me now that I know now that there's, there's, there's a term for this and I'm not alone. Okay. That makes me feel better. You know, just knowing that it's normal you know, and there's help in that, that, that I'm not alone in the, in the fight. It's really that not feeling alone. And I think that's such so important to highlight as well, is that, you know, kind of the veil being lifted and realizing that when, when you do understand terminology, for instance, and, and um, you, you get some sense of support, whether it's like in person or on, in an online community, just understanding that, wow, it's not just me. There's a lot of other people going through this and there's like words and terms for it. I think that that's um, um, very helpful for people and like, quite honestly, like comforting to a degree as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads me into my next question. Eritra. So considering um, your own personal experience with mental health. And so, so why is it today important for you to raise awareness about mental health? I knew, I know you do a lot of work um, on your um, social media and you also have a blog. So what is it that drives you to do this work, to raise awareness uh, around mental health? Well, I mean, when I think about it and I ask myself, like, I've always wanted a purpose and I never felt like I had a purpose. And I always thought it was cliche when you get these people coming into your, you know, college classrooms or high school classrooms talking about. Um, what they do and you know all these inspirational people and you think okay that's I'm never going to figure it out and you hear this word purpose 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 all all the time and it gets annoying because you're like well I don't know what my purpose is now like for me now I see what it means like something happens in life and usually dark moments sometimes dark moments lead you to, to your purpose and so for me like the suicide ideation the suicide attempt like I don't know what, what is worse than almost taking your own life because you don't understand what's going on with you, you know? And so for, that's, that gives me purpose. Like there, there, there's help out there. There's people, you're not the only one experiencing it, experiencing it. And if I can be the one to openly share my story without holding, holding anything back to save somebody else's life, be it Eritrean or non-Eritrean, doesn't matter. Um, that's purpose, you know, preventing someone from ending their life. And so that is one of the reasons. And then um, just having the firsthand experience with the generational and cultural gap um, between, you know, us that are raised in America and our parents and just understanding, having a very intimate understanding of our parents' expectations and how the community influences what our parents want for us and how, like, why our parents want what they want for us and why they, they try to communicate it the way they do and how that doesn't work and how you want to be your own person and you have your own ideas, your own dreams, your own identity and that clash. Like I I have such an intimate experience with it and I understand it so well that I would love to just be a a bridge for people like my nephew or my little sister or somebody's cousin, like, you know, just being able to be that bridge to know that, you know, there's someone out here talking about stuff we're not talking about in our communities. So yeah, for sure. And I think that, I mean, to me, that that is definitely like uh, very, very purposeful because like you say, there's there's yet so much ground to cover when it comes to mental health awareness and just openness when it comes to our culture, similar type, con- let's say conservative cultures, right? right? There's a lot of work to be done. And then I think it also creates credibility, the fact that you have had these experiences and that you're so open um, about them. I think it creates a lot of credibility and I'm sure you'll be able to help a lot of people that way. So I think that's fantastic. And then what you mentioned about parental expectations, that's a great segue into like our main topic for today, which is 
we'll be focusing on like expectations from parents. Mm -hmm. And so for most diaspora kids, living between two cultures and two different set of expectations brings its own set of challenges. I know it certainly has done for me and some of that I'm still working through. And I think some of that is inevitable, like something we'll deal with, you know, um, for the rest of our lives, just because we live in this like weird and wonderful in-between space. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm curious to know, like, how did this, this impact you living between two cultures and two different sets of expectations? And just to be clear to our listeners, what we're meaning here is like being raised in a, in a Western culture while at home living in a more conservative, um, in this case, Eritrean culture. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was, I was very good at blending in and being what I needed to be at the moment to, to like survive the moment, to avoid certain conversations, to avoid conflict for this, you know, trying to keep the peace in the house or whatever it might be. So because I was very good at that, I was also very good at um, just playing both roles, I guess. And so when I'm at home, um, very, you know, conservative, religious, um, Orthodox family, that's what I grew up in. Um, I was able to, and I, and I generally like, felt like I identified with that, the religious upbringing and um, the religious conservatism. Um, but then when I left, like, like the house, majority of my experience, majority of my friends, majority of what I was being fed was um, American culture. And it's not all negative. It's not as if we can't decipher what part of the Western culture we can follow and what part we shouldn't. You know, our parents have this fear where they think once you leave our house, it's just bad things out there because they don't understand Western culture. Um, mm. so let me try to stay focused. I have a tendency to like go off on a tangent. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing is, um, I guess, I think most of us maybe just play both roles for as long as we can. And then when we're able to leave the house for college or, technical school or whatever it is we want to do after high school that's when we really pick the identity that we want and that creates a huge problem for our parents because it's not what they want for us right (laughs) so Mm. um would you say that that was like the biggest impact on you that you had to live this kind of dual life in a sense absolutely yeah yeah oh my gosh yeah the dual life and even if you genuinely just want to like teach your parents or inform them on the good of western culture the parts of the western culture that you're picking up that are that are that expand your mind that make you more open and accepting of other people different people um because the west is not just great for education it's also good for learning how to be social and and identify with different kinds of people not just people who look like you and think like you and believe in the same thing that you do even Mm -hmm. if you try to do that with your parents sometimes it just won't be worth it because they have their beliefs and they have the right to um and generally they're conservative so it's not like it's not I realize like oh my god Arrow, it's not your job to change mommy and baba's minds it's not your job to convince them that you are still who you are you can still be Eritrean and American at the same time like I need to stop trying to convince them that I just be what I need to be maybe not have those conversations or have those show those identities in the house because it's different for every household, you know what I mean? Like, it's different for every household. And you got to see what's, what, what will work in your household. But you, you can be both, but don't bet on them accepting that. Because they are who they are. Yeah, I mean, in general, I'd say we're definitely talking about a conservative culture here. But they're definitely outliers. So oh, I've, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of friends and family whose parents, they've been able to adapt in a better way and embrace... embrace um, you know the culture the western culture more but mm-hmm. um, i would say that the conservatism is probably more prevalent in general yeah and and i think you make a very important point which is like um that they're operating from what they know yes. and i know from my own experience that for a long time i was really angry because um i felt misunderstood and i spent a lot of time trying to convince um my parents and i think there is it's important to highlight that 
it's not our job to change them. Yeah. And as much as we don't want them to change us, then maybe it's not our job to change them either. And, and maybe that's just, it's, it's an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, there is some space there for, you know, like leaning into each other and uh, trying just to understand and respect each other more. But that's a different thing. But in terms of trying to change our parents, that's something that I've <laughs> mm-hmm. tried for a long time, especially in my younger years. But um, mm-hmm. I realized that that's not necessary and it's not realistic and possibly not even the right way to go about it because they've had their own set of experiences that are so different to mine right so right. who am I to come here and tell them to change um, Very good point. you're absolutely right if we don't want them to change us we shouldn't try to change them but I think the balance is um, respect and I think <clears throat> at least let me speak from my experience because I don't want to generalize and say all mm-hmm. parents or most parents like I don't know that to say that I just know my parents so mm-hmm. I think I think the biggest thing for me now that I look back on my experience is like what was I trying to extract from my parents what did I desperately want from them um, because I don't understand them 100% and they don't understand me 100% but what's the middle ground where where come the love and peace regardless of our differences and it's respect you know just to be able to respect my like who I am what I choose to be what I choose to believe in how I choose to live my life um, just respect that you don't have to accept it, you don't have to like it you don't have to say anything about it just respect it and let it be and I'll respect you and let it be and we can move on with our lives you know that's yeah, I think it's, there's a lot behind that, like, you know, live and let live. I think there is definitely a lot behind the notion of respect. And I'm also pretty big on like um, self-compassion because mm-hmm. I think there is, you know, as much as we point fingers towards others and what we want them to provide for us or do and be for us. I think um, as a diaspora kid, I mean, I was born here in Sweden. I've obviously been to Eritrea many times over my lifetime, but I was born here. And I think what I realize now and hindsight is 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So is that um, nobody has walked this path that I've walked. Right. There's nobody in my family that has had to deal with this set of challenges. And obviously they've had massive set of challenges that I can't relate to in any way because my upbringing has been so safe and secure, much thanks to them. But in terms of living here in between two cultures and navigating my, my, cultural identity as an Eritrean but also as a western call it Swedish um, woman there's nobody in my family has walked down this path Mm -hmm. in the past so it's really a path of creation as opposed to um, following a mold because there is no mold for it we like to believe and our parents like to believe that you know this this is the this is how we should conduct ourselves because we are you know we're Eritreans or whatever but in reality I've come to this point of self, self-compassion, understanding mm-hmm. myself and them better and just saying, well, nobody, is wa- nobody in my family has walked down this path before. Mm-hmm. I'm the first one who's doing it. So there, there is no template for it. I'm mm-hmm. actually co-creating it as I go along. And that makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, beautifully said. Absolutely. As well, to just for us to be like more self-compassionate towards ourselves, despite like coming from this culture that often has a big expectation and trying to use that in the conversation of being like, look, it, we've never been here before. Mm-hmm. Like, so let's just be kinder towards each other mm-hmm. and try to understand each other. Beautifully said. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, what were the key expectations of you from your parents <clears throat> growing up? Oh, uh, not different from many other Eritreans, but so like a, a linear, I think you said this to me, actually, like a linear ladder to success. So you know, obviously finish your education, um, go to college, master's or beyond, um, get a respectable job that pays well, marriage, kids, the house, and then, you know, be able to take care of your parents, which which I'm not against, but it's just this pressure to, to just follow this straight line to success, material success, I guess. And so um, that it was very it's it's a lot of pressure because uh, science and math is not my strongest subject i i'm not good at forcing myself to study things i don't understand and can't do it's just you know law medicine engineering you know we don't have time to waste whereas in the american culture it's be who you are do what makes you happy um and money will come along with it or whatever but in our culture it's like nope we don't have time to waste get into a field that's respectable that's going to pay you well you know you have a job wherever you can go um 
and then you can you can be able to take care of us and and you know pay forward essentially yeah it's that kind of very linear fashion of how things should happen and also looking for security right exactly um which i always thought fascinating because being raised in sweden is probably one of the most secure places in the world. So I I never really derived from this need of seeking security because I already had that. Mm-hmm. You know? But obviously my our parents, their background is completely different. They come from a, a very unstable kind of beginning with war and separation and all that. So yeah. So it's it's very interesting just how both of those things are at odds. Um, and you know what? I like how whenever we're talking about our parents and their expectations and, and like when I'm speaking from my side of the, of the coin, I say what I have to say, but then you do a really good job of um, kind of giving me their perspective as well, because all we know is they came here um, fleeing their country or they just came here because they, they need better opportunities. They came with trauma that we don't understand that we can't untangle, but that is what's kind of formulating how they think and how they operate and how um, they raise us. So I think that you keep doing that because that's the perspective that we don't generally hear from them. Um, but I like that you're doing that because it's keeping my mind, okay, that's that's the perspective that they're coming with. And it, and it helps kind of level it out and make sense for me. Yeah, I mean, thank you. And I guess it's just, it's just coming up as we're going along in this conversation, but if that's just from my own healing journey where I've gone through periods of, feeling really misunderstood and not being able to get through to them and, and angry, upset, resentment, you name it, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then obviously going on this journey, you grow, right? Yeah. You grow, you, you, you grow in humility. You seek to understand them even more. You seek to understand that they had a story before you even came into the picture. Right. And that there's a lot in that story that we haven't, um, that we don't have access to because a lot of our parents don't even want to talk about it. Right. Cause it's, I, I, it's, there's a lot there, trauma, potentially PTSD. There's a lot there in their very tumultuous experiences, but I just find for me, and I respect that this might not be the case for everybody, but for me in my own healing journey, I have had to, I've had this need to understand them better mm-hmm. because I think that's, that, that's just the way that I work. I just see it as like an, like there was an energy there from my side that was really like, sad or perhaps negative and I I just felt that there was something at the other end of that I was like okay well it can't just be like my point of view right and it's not perfect you know it's never going to be um perfect as such like you know I I still feel misunderstood at times but I think in kind of getting over this like anger or misunderstanding over time I've just tried to to kind of time and time remind myself again that there's a lot more here uh, than what I can see. And this is not just about me. Their story is also present here and it dictates how they behave. So fear, for instance, having mm-hmm. lost everything, that means that you seek security because you're scared of losing everything again. You know what losing everything means and we don't. So it's, it's, it's just kind of that humility that's led to a lot of healing for myself. So that's why I try to keep both of those perspectives in mind. Um, Actually, but but I'm not. I mean, to be really frank, it's. It, it, I feel the same way as you. It was really really tough to grow up with these expectations. I had the same expectations of everything should ha- all of the things that you mentioned, and they should happen in a very linear fashion. And yeah. if you miss like one milestone, then everything is over. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. which, as in like being raised here in a Western culture, that's not the case. People take they, you get encouraged to take detours sometimes to find your creativity and find yourself and right. all of those things. So it's been very frustrating um, at times to try to figure out that balance and also kind of translate what's going on in your life back to the family mm-hmm. and like to try to explain to them that like, no, like I'm fine. Like there's no catastrophe here. Mm-hmm. I'm just figuring things out you know um so yeah it, it's it's more of like um it, it's really helped me to heal to, to try to understand them better and I applaud you for that I don't know if you I I don't know how you uh celebrate yourself or congratulate yourself but I, I learn a lot from you and I'm and I'm thankful that there's someone like you 
out there who's speaking about this because it didn't keep like it continues to encourage me like okay it's not just going to stop because I'm 28 no there's someone else out there who's had some more experiences who's probably dealt with it longer but look what she's doing with it this is beautiful so thank you so much Ruthie for your work really appreciate you thank you thank you Etra. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy that we're able to connect and have this conversation it's it's so important um I have a, um, I'm kind of interested to know if, um, because it's sort of easy sometimes, I think, when you grow up between two cultures, there's a lot of pressure around that, right? Right. So, and and sometimes some of us uh, can have the tendency to throw the baby out with the Mm bathwater in terms of those expectations. And like for myself, as I've reflected on some of those expectations that I had, like for instance, that I just had to go to university. I just had to go to university and get a degree and so on. There was no other option available. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's what my parents instilled in me. And I don't, I realize now that I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. So some of those expectations um, might have served us, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or do you see any value in some of those expectations that your parents had on you? Yeah, and the biggest thing is, the biggest value I see, it's very apparent, is they just, they don't want us to struggle like they did, you know, mm-hmm. what, what other, it, it's not just Eritrean parents, it's American parents, Indian parents, and, you know, every other culture out there, they push those kinds of expectations around, uh, you know, pursuing medicine, law, engineering, it's not because that's some magical career, it's because it's, it pays, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you, the opportunities are, um, endless in those careers so really it's just they don't want us to struggle which I I respect and I get it and 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 there is value in it um and you know our parents like our culture were you know underdogs you know hard workers definitely not looking for a handout from their kids they can they've been managing well without our help right (laughs) coming as immigrants and 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 um, building a community and cooperatives and, and and getting things rolling for themselves so it's not like they need us to survive but um, just it's just they don't want us to struggle and then they want us to keep it you know stick within the family continue to help each other and just continue to build that way like they did for us um, mm. that's the biggest thing they just don't want us to struggle it comes from a good place it's just sometimes it's not delivered or communicated um, effectively yeah no for sure I definitely feel that the culture clash between parents and let's say second generation kids can sometimes be downplayed as like, you know, oh, this is our culture, you know, but then at the same time, we're often not shown the the love and acceptance needed to navigate some of the hard stuff, like not. And that can create a separation between kids and parents. So Mm -hmm. what's your experience with that in terms of some of the choices that you've made in terms of perhaps like studying or or work experience and so on? Uh, For me, uh, it took a while to figure out what I'm about, but I knew what I wasn't about. So, So for me, it was very obvious that the sciences, medicine, engineering, those hard sciences, those things that don't involve emotions and feelings that I just knew it wasn't for me. Um, so I think I, I got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm definitely more of a feeler. Um, I think obviously, but it's like, I, I'm, I feel more happy. I'm more passionate. I'm more engaged when it has to do with connecting with humans and their feelings and their um, normalizing, being sensitive, all these things that I knew I was all my life, but kind of ashamed of it. I'm like, no, I can do something with this, you know? Um, so knowing that much about myself helped me realize what I'm not into. Um, so when it came to like uh, college, I went into the social sciences. Um, and sorry, I kind of need you to remind me of all the questions. No, can you? I, I actually think I've lost your your sound level has gone down quite low. Oh. Can you um, just try sure. to speak into the mic? Let's see okay. what happens. How about now? Mm, no, it still sounds very low, but it might just be on your side. I think so. It cut off for like a few seconds while you were talking to, but then it kicked back in. Oh, okay. How about now? Let's just keep going. It might be okay. recording at the, like, it's just that I hear you very sort of, it's like the the volume level is very low, but we'll keep going. Okay. It was, it was just kind of, my question was more mm-hmm. around um, how, how hard it can be 
for for us to like navigate the hard stuff without the love and acceptance you know when our parents say for instance you've got to study this but maybe in your you know in your heart you feel that you want to pursue something creative or something uh, a bit more you know uh, less traditional and more original you know Mm -hmm. and like for instance when I was applying for university there was like the accepted courses that I could apply for was like medicine economics and engineering that was it you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes if your passion is perhaps outside of that or maybe you don't even know what it is that you want to do then it's hard because we don't get the support that we need to like figure things out yeah that yeah okay thank you for restating that that was very hard for me because I'm a I'm a sensitive person and I'm a feeler and so not receiving that from my parents the way that I needed it led to me seeking it elsewhere you know what I mean whether it's through a relationship whether it's through I don't know whatever was going to help me feel like it's okay you're not getting it here but you'll figure it out get it elsewhere so for me that was that was really really hard um uh how would I I, I, don't, I don't know how I got through it or did it because I wasn't really close to a lot of people where I could open up on that level. Um, I don't know, sis. I don't know how I got through it. I just, I, I guess I, I learned to cope with it and bottle my emotions. Um, and then that led to substance abuse. I think that's really what happened. Um, Do you feel, it, you, I don't know. you can tell us a bit more about your substance abuse? Yeah, so it was when I, um, so I had to move out of Indianapolis in 2016, because it was literally like a life or death situation for me, things were getting really bad. It was right after I graduated college. I was working um, like odd jobs while trying to figure it out. Um, And I had someone that was really supportive and helping me then. But I was reaching like a breaking point with the pressures of my parents, like, okay, what are you going to do? You've graduated? What job are you going to get? Why aren't you stable? Um, and I had just came out of like just a bunch of transitions, like marriage, religious transitions. I was going through a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I knew like, if I don't get out, things are going to get really bad. And like, it was a moment of suicide ideation. So I had to leave. And thankfully I was able to move to DC. Um, and I was able to work, um, a job that I enjoyed. Um, but that was the first time I had real freedom where I'm living on my own, no kind of parental supervision. Um, and that's when like, I was like, okay, I'm going to try whatever I want to do because I can do whatever I want. And that's when the substance abuse really started. And I didn't think it was a problem because I had such a high tolerance for it and I was able to function. So it was like functional alcoholism. Um, And a lot of it was just number one, I ran away from Indiana because I had to. So I was leaving on bad terms. And then here I am having to be with myself most of the time, which wasn't good. Um, and separation anxiety, having to separate from my family and my parents. So there's a lot going on. And I think everything that I had internalized emotionally, the pressures, stressors, all of that kind of hit me hard in 2016. Mm -hmm. So that's how the substance abuse um, started. But thankfully, like I was never like alone, alone. I always had somebody um, who I couldn't share everything with, but was there enough to keep me like sane, if you know what I mean. What would you want to say to someone there that might be struggling with substance abuse today? Um, You're not alone. Nothing is wrong with you. But just know that no matter how much you think you enjoy it or can handle it, um, know that it's a coping mechanism. There's something going on, some problem, something you haven't dealt with. Maybe it's subconsciously or maybe it's obvious. But you're, you know, you're using substance to cope with it and ignore it and deal with it and um you're you can get you can get help you know but you have to want the help that's the thing nobody can tell you something's wrong with you you need help that's the worst way for anyone to come at you but like (laughs) reach out to me if you want like Mm. i'll do the best i can to help but like seriously like reach out to me if you want um but just know like that that's not that's not the answer it's not sustainable it's not good for you it's you know it's destroying your organs you know all that but just know that nobody can help you unless you want to be helped was there a point where you came to a decision where you were just like okay 
like this coping mechanism isn't working for me? Was there like a very clear moment when that happened for you? Um, I think so. And that was when I realized like I was getting more, like I was becoming more depressed. I was, um, I don't know if I could say more depressed, but I became depressed and just nothing, just, I just would go to work and come home and always have something to drink and couldn't do anything without it. When I realized like I can't enjoy myself, I can't enjoy other people's company without this. If I don't have this, um, I can't enjoy people's company. Then I was like, that's telling on for like a year. And I think it was New Year's or a couple days after New Year's. I just realized, all right, man, like I'm still alive, but this doesn't feel good at all. Um, I can't be around even my family without consuming alcohol. Like I can't do any system. So, I mean, I decided to start cutting back. Um, but I didn't even, I don't even think I thought I was a functional alcoholic. I didn't realize that until I didn't admit that actually until this year. Wow. So I completely quit like, um, I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, but I didn't even admit that to myself until this year. But it definitely like I, I drew back from it, but I, I didn't, I couldn't even tell myself, yeah, I'm a bunch of alcoholic until this year. I mean, that's amazing to be able to do that just on your own, you know, but I think I think what's connected to this is also the fact that we don't talk about a lot of these things. So even as we're going through them, we can't properly identify what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you might go and see a a doctor or like a mental health professional and they'll tell you that you're numbing. You're numbing yourself through this and that there's other things to look at. But it's I think it's so. Yeah, it's so insane that we go through all of these things. And as we're going through them, we can't really pinpoint and identify what it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy that we're having this conversation um, so that more people can kind of relate and understand that. Can I add way- something, actually? Yeah, go for it. I didn't do it on my own. So I never want to take credit for something that I didn't do because okay. I, I couldn't do it on my own. But um, I, I definitely did not like quit forever on my own because you don't realize like the first two days of you um, trying to be sober free are the worst. And I wouldn't have known all of this unless I had someone to help me do the research and make sense. In your mind, you're like, no, I'll be fine. I can quit. If I commit something, I can quit. No, substance, substance abuse is something different. Like your body gets chemically dependent on it. And so the withdrawal symptoms of the first like two days are really, really hard. So I couldn't have done it by myself. You know, I had help. Um, but once you get over the first two days, after that, it becomes like psychological. Um, and then it just becomes easier. Like, why did I even do this to begin? You know, so it's not something I don't know about other people. But for me, I needed help and support and encouragement. And the freedom to to cry and, and be vulnerable, like really vulnerable. Um, so I just want to throw that in. <laughs> I mean, did you get help from a professional? Or was it like, no. from, or... from my partner? Okay, that's amazing. And uh, what would you say to somebody maybe that's a little bit younger that um, um, hasn't got that, that particular support system and that's coping with this? Like, have you ever been in touch with any mental health services that you thought uh, could be interesting or do you know of any that you would want to recommend? Um, I actually never got in contact with any mental health services um, just because I, I didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, But for anyone who's, whether they're underage or over 21, but still young or don't, you know, don't have anyone to talk to or tell to about this, um, reach out to somebody that you trust on some level. Because I'm telling you, like drinking is so common in our culture, Uh, not just our culture, but just in society, it's it's common. Um, So there's somebody out there who who does drink, who can understand, who won't judge you. Somebody is out there um, that you can talk to and figure out how to get help. Um, and if you're not comfortable with that, then do something like a Google search of, um, I don't know, places that can help you or, or just, I don't know what to say, like some kind of. Yeah, I think it's search. important just that you made, you made that point of, of like not being alone and how important that is. And I think that's, that's fantastic. And it's great that you had your partner and you're thinking there might be some people out there that might not have that 
um, type of, of support. So I would just add to that and say that in, in the US, um, I know that in some states you can just call 911 and got, get connected to a mental health professional mm-hmm. or some type of service. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, check in general, just I think it's good to check in with your GP or doctor to yeah. see what kind of help that you can get. There are also um, national helplines in most countries. You can just Google that for your particular country where you can um, uh, get put through to an advice line where there are people on call that can offer advice and just he- listen to you anonymously. Mm-hmm. There are apps like T- Talkspace, for instance, where you can sign up and get to speak to a therapist via text message, which is um, kind of nice and maybe... Um, a good way into uh, therapy and also good because the price point is a lot lower than um, therapy, but that you get to speak to a certified um, therapist as well. So there are some options um, out there for sure. And if anybody that's listening to this is unsure, then just send myself or Eritra a message on an IG mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be happy to kind of help you do some research for your particular country. Absolutely. And there's also Alcoholics Anonymous, if you would rather like, you know, something, something mm-hmm. fast, something um, free, uh, something where people don't even know you and you just need to like connect or see people one-on-one that are struggling, and, but you don't want to know anything about each other. You just want to be in that space and talk to them. There's that too, if, yeah. if you're interested. The support is super important. Absolutely. Um, so here you are today with all of your experiences in mind, you know, you've, mm-hmm. you've gone through a lot yeah, you are in this place where you're now trying to help other people out of the similar experiences that you've had. Um, how how do you go about setting new expectations for yourself? Because in some way, it's been a departure, right? It's yeah. been a departure from those, you know, very traditional expectations that you've had. You've been on a journey and you are where you are today. So how do you go about setting new expectations for yourself? And how important is that? It's very important. And that's a really good question because I'm, you know, in the midst of that now figuring out what that looks like for me and what it means. So I know myself well enough. Thank God. Like I know myself well enough to know what what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And for for situations or people that are in the gray matter where I'm like, I'm not sure how this will work for me. I just I don't place a judgment on it. I just kind of put on a, you know, kind of put it on the side. Don't give it too much attention. So. I, a lot of like, a lot of religious upbringing kind of um, inhibited or kind of kept me from being who I am 100%. Um, mm-hmm. And so taking that out of the picture in terms of not letting it dictate what I really think and what I really believe helps me be, be who I really am. And so I set expectations by self, for myself by asking, okay, is this, Eru today or is this Eru still trying to um, move away from the conditioning that I've been brought up on because it's a lot of conditioning right it's a lot of a lot of ways of thinking and being that have been um, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all so I'm sorry if the word conditioning comes off as wrong but just trying to filter through what I think and feel and what I've been brought up to think and feel and that can be a little challenging but I know that so how I set expectations for myself is, does this harm me or does this help me? Does this harm this person or does it help them? That's like, because I need things simplified. Because since I have a tendency to overthink, I have to simplify things for myself. So that's the biggest question. Does this thought or does this action or does this place or this person or this idea, is it going to harm me or help me? And then once it's a check, no, it's not going to harm me. It's going to help me. Is it going to harm this other person or help them? And that's how I kind of figure out this worked for me, this doesn't. And then I, I tune into my feelings. I'm a feeler and I am used to be ashamed of that, but that's who I am. I'm a feeler and I'm, um, I... It's so interesting how you can turn that around for something that I think, um, I mean, I can relate to that. I think outwardly, I'm probably perceived as being like sort of very strong, but I think a lot of people in our cultures have been raised to be very strong you know, just handle things and so on. But at the same time, I'm incredibly sensible, sensitive. I have an Mm -hmm. incredible sensitivity, which doesn't really translate outwardly. But it's so interesting that now you're going back to yourself that you can um, identify your feelings as a power base Mm -hmm. and that you operate from that power base. 
that just feels like incredibly more authentic to me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I used to think like, okay, society says if you're a sensitive person, you're a feeler, you're obviously not using your brain. I'm like, what are you talking about? A lot of my problems came from my brain. A lot of my problems came from overthinking and trying to be perfect and trying to get it right and trying to ask all these questions and this and that and what ifs and looking out for danger everywhere I go. So it's not, it's a balance. And even balances have to have balances, you know, like everything in moderation, but you got to figure that moderation is specific to you. So I honestly, I just, I just want to be like authentic. Now I have to figure out how to be authentic but not too authentic around certain people. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like there are ways of being yourself in whatever setting um, without limiting yourself. Cause that's, and and that's honestly my struggle right now. Like I have a very strong feeling um, towards moderating your authenticity, depending on where you are. Like I really dislike that. So I'm working on figuring out why it upsets me and what it means and like, do I always have to just be careful about who I am, where I am? Okay, so I don't need to be in those spaces, in those areas, and around those people that say you have to uh, be careful with how authentic you are. All right, that's, that's you know, another extreme. So getting staying away from extremes and staying away from generalizations um, and just, just being kind. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. And I think it's interesting that you point out that it is, it's an experience of learning, right? Yeah. Because you're on this journey now of like self-discovery, really. You've come to this point where you're reconciling with yourself. You're kinder towards yourself. And, and I think, however, that when you look into like how the brain functions and we are more prone to negative thinking and a lot of that negative thinking goes into like overthinking right so Mm -hmm. I think it's a process of unlearning that Mm -hmm. and I I can't help but also think of um, coming from a culture where we're so preoccupied with what will other people say and think of us that we've obviously inherited a lot of that even as we're trying to decouple from some of those like values and thought patterns that Your real freedom is to be able to obviously be respectful and, and kind to other people, but generally not to have to doubt yourself so much or to, yes. to shift gears all the time, depending on like where you are, mm-hmm. but, you know? So I think that there's a lot of cultural, like perhaps like unlearning around that as well. Absolutely. And can I please hit a point about <laughs> the whole <laughs> community judgment, like that, cause that was a big thing for me and, and I try to be an advocate about that without coming from a place of resentment. So obviously I'm still working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the community, the community, I mean, collectively we are awesome. Right. But there's also a chance, a possibility of if we misuse that power, it can be very damaging to people and it can even push, um, especially younger Eritrean Americans away from the culture because of the, the, the collective judgment and the, the gossip and the, you know, unfortunately our parents having to, consider what others might think of them and they're not coming at least you know they're not coming from a a a negative place when they wonder what others will think of them if this happens and it can serve a good purpose right anything can but it has the potential to lead people to and what I'm talking about is community judgment and what people think and the gossiping and the whole you know basing your actions um and your identity on the community and what the community is going to think so it has the potential, as you know, and as a lot of people know, to people ending their lives, people leaving the community, people um, um, behaving in ways to rebel against that. And so my advice to anybody, whether it's if you want to take it religiously or um, I don't care, however way you want to take it is don't try not to let what other people think and what they say about you and how much like influence the community's words have on your parents affect you and who you are because they're just people. And, and, and I know it's a lot stronger when we hear things in our language or critiques or judgments and yeah. things like that. When we hear in our language, it's definitely can be damaging and it's definitely powerful. But remember, try to see them as people. Yes, they are trans. Yes, they're people you probably grew up with that your parents probably have over that are just so entangled in your life and your upbringing but you know take your power back because they're just people 
and you don't owe them anything. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to, um, out of respect, uh, speak or, or act a certain way because they're older than you. If, you know, disrespect is disrespect, unkindness is unkindness, but your job is not to, like I said in my vlog, your job is not to give them a piece of your mind or, um, your job is just to, to, to step up higher, you know, and, and move about that way. I need to get that out. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think that's, that, that is really important. And I think it's inevitable, inevitable that we bring that up in this conversation of talking about expectations. There's also like a very toxic element to expectations. And in our cultures, it's, it can be that it is very that, you know, um, th- that we're very preoccupied with what other, or let's say at least our parents, like preoccupied with, like what would what will other people say? What will mm-hmm. other people think of your choice? Not necessarily looking at the choices that you're making, like a career choice or like a, a choice of romantic partner or whatever it is. That they're not necessarily looking at that and really look like uh, deeply trying to understand why your child is trying to do that. I think often what's triggered in them is a fear, and that yeah. fear is kind of manifested in. Seven you know mm-hmm. what, what will people say about us yeah and that's that's kind of very difficult because then you're not operating from your power base you're operating from a place of fear mm-hmm. and I think I personally would want to say that it's really important to decouple from that that it's really important to find yourself outside of this notion of what other people will think or say about you and I I'm quite happy that I see a lot of people like our age and, and younger that are starting to embrace this authenticity and kind of mm-hmm. not caring so much about that. Cause I think it's important not to care too much about what other people will say. I think you can certainly like respect your culture, respect your family, respect, you know, where you're from and um, all of these things, but at the same time, be authentic to who you are in your own expression and how you want to live your life, you know? Yeah. And I think those things can coexist. They're, they're mutually inclusive, I think. And I think if we operate from a place of compassion and humility and try to understand each other over time, initially it might not be the case, but over time we can find reconciliation, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. between these two like seemingly like opposite ways of, of, of seeing things like, you know, like the kids and, and the parents. But I think it is really important not to be too invested in this notion of uh, what will other people say or what will the community think and I personally have an issue with fear-driven I think we all do that like yeah. with fear-driven decision making or fear fear-driven like things that we do because we're scared of what other people will say I think it's just yeah it's just a shame it does happen. It's happened to me. I've done a lot of that in my life, but I'm just kind of dedicated to not do that anymore because I'm giving away like my agency when I'm doing mm-hmm. it. And that's just like not acceptable at this, at this stage of my life anyway. Yeah. And you know what? And I think it's common. It might be common in small towns. Um, you know, just like you see in the American movies, like small towns, they usually stereotype them as Everybody knows everybody, so everybody will know your business. And I did come from a small town, and leaving that small town <clears throat> and moving to D.C., it opened up my eyes a lot. Like, oh, my gosh, the world is – and, you know, the, the Habesha community in D.C. is one of the largest. And so it opened up my eyes like I am living in this little box, limiting myself, worrying about being a certain type of Eritrean when there are all kinds of Eritreans everywhere. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. so beautiful, and it's just so different, and it – Sometimes you have to leave, whether it's college or just traveling. You kind of have to, if you're able to, find, like, try to leave and travel so your, your mind can open up um, and see that the world is bigger than your community and your church and your neighborhood. Um, and then, obviously, coming to New York, that, you know, I was already used to the whole big city living thing, so um, it didn't shock me as much. But especially some of us that are from small towns, it's definitely easier to um conform and because that's all you know and that's you know it's it's kind of comfortable but if something within you doesn't something within your spirit within your soul doesn't feel right like you're not being true to yourself give yourself time you still have time to grow like the whole self-discovery thing never ends but if you're at a point where you feel like it's life and death situation obviously get the help you need or if you feel like 
you're in, in how do you say it? existential crisis existential crisis yeah yeah with your identity and and you're making decisions um from a place of fear and a place of um making other people happy but yourself let this talk or something be your light bulb like okay i need to do what's going to make me happy let me get on the path to figure that out let me connect with the right people let me not visit um these circles or go to this event or be around these people because I don't think that's right for my spirit, you know? So, yeah, no, I think it's very important to highlight that fact that we, that we're saying that you have the permission to do that. We all have the permission to do that. We should Mm -hmm. give ourselves permission to do that, you know, Uh, to live the type of authentic life that, that is um, going to be helpful for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I have two more questions for you, Ertra. Okay talked for an hour which feels like um it, it's it's been really nice and i feel like it's gone really fast but yeah. um i think um what i want to know like if in, in thinking of speaking to this community the every well-being community <clears throat> what do you think is important for our listeners into this community what do you think is important for them to know about mental health um that everyone has mental health everyone has to take care of their mental health um just like, you know, physical health, emotional health, um, mental health is, is just is part of that. But there are just some of us who have to spend more time taking care of our mental health for various reasons. So like, mm-hmm. for example, if like um, if someone's anemic, um, they obviously have to take care of that. Right. So they eat the right foods that have that are rich in iron um, or they might take an iron supplement. And so for someone like me, like with social anxiety, um, I have to limit my time in social engagements. Like I, I, I don't know until I'm there when it's time to go. I don't realize when it's time to go until I start feeling something or, you know, I'm doing my breathing exercise to help me stay calm um, or whatever it is I need to do to manage my social anxiety. Um, that's what would make mine, like how I take care of my mental health different from somebody else who might not have the same, um, <clears throat> I don't want to say issue. What's the right word? <laughs> the same uh, yeah the same challenges same or, challenges. Yeah, yeah yeah so mental health everyone has it we just we're all just on a spectrum just like with our physical health we're on a spectrum um <clears throat> and with with mental health we're all on a spectrum some people just have to do uh have to take care of themselves in different ways with different frequencies um it, it'll affect how they go about things like going to the store might be different for someone with social anxiety than someone who doesn't have it or uh so just just that and that vulnerability with like the right person or people um was the key to my journey so someone with mental health um is more maybe is more selective of who they let in because they have to they might overthink the relationship they might overthink the friendship so everyone has mental health um but we deal with it differently (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Everyone does have mental health. And like you say, sometimes it can be situational, it can be life stages, it can be like traumatic experiences that trigger that it can be, you know, genetic hereditary It can be like a multitude of reasons, but like Mm -hmm. we all experience it um, to some degree at some point in our lives, you know, and whether that's direct and sometimes even indirect, like through family members and so on, which does have an impact on our well-being as well. So that's a really important point. And if we think back to your teenage self, like 10, 15 years ago, what advice would you like to give to your teenage self that was going through all of these symptoms, but didn't, you know, you, you didn't understand necessarily what was going on. So what advice would you like to give to, to your teenage self? Ruthie, that's so crazy because like 10 years, 10 years ago, I would have been a senior in high school. And honestly, we just started like a high school reunion page because our 10 year reunions next year. That is so crazy. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, 10 years ago, I was senior high school. So I, <clears throat> I guess the advice I give myself is I wish I knew that, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I wish I knew that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only one who had perfected, you know, things like my smiling and small talk, um, like to hide my pain. Um, I wish I knew like that suicide ideation, suicide attempt wasn't the only way to heal. Um, and I wrote down three pieces of advice I'd give to myself. Um, 
advice one would be I don't have to force myself to be close with, uh, sorry, I don't have to force myself to be close with family members, relatives, Eritrean community members, just because we share the same blood or just because I grew up with them. Um, mm. I wanted that understanding, that validation, but I don't have to force myself to try to seek it from them just because we're blood or just because they're who I've known for the longest. Mm. Advice two would be, I don't have to stay where I'm not respected. And advice three would be the light and love I have to share with the world is massive. And that is a source and it can be a source of overstimulation. So I have to be mindful that I need to re-energize more often um, and to take care of my heart. So that's what I would tell my younger self. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. And I just want to say that, first of all, thank you for coming here and sharing your story. I mean, I think that's really powerful and it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. So thank you for being so um, open and generous with us. Thank you for having me. And I also think that uh, what I find like truly inspirational is that this journey that you're on, you've embarked on this journey where you're like truly like intimately getting to know yourself, Mm -hmm. you know. And even saying words like protecting your, your, your heart and so on, like really makes me feel um, very positive and like to continue following your journey. Because I think really that it is a, it is a continued journey of self-discovery and then eventually self-leadership, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, I just think that's beautiful. So thank you. Thank you again. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and everything you're doing and sharing bits and parts, you know, bits and pieces of your story too. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll have to get back on to um, record um, some more uh, episodes here. But for now, where can people find you on Instagram? Um, I'm on Instagram as erythraG19. So E-R-I-T-R-E-A, G as in girl, the number 19. Mm-hmm. Any other platforms? Oh, yeah. And on Facebook, I'm on there as Eritra Kifli. So same spelling of the first name. And then last name is K-I-F as in Frank, L as in love, A-I. Um, and then Twitter would be the same tag as my Instagram, Eritra G19. Mm-hmm. And should I mention my blog too? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. And then my blog, it's easy, www.erythraG19.com. Oh, I'm also on YouTube. Uh, same thing, Eritra G19. Perfect. So we'll also share um, the links to your platforms um, in um, our notes. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to the po- Airy Wellbeing podcast today. And we wish you all the best until we speak again, hopefully soon. Thank you so much, Ruthie. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. Take care of yourselves. Thank you for tuning in to the Airy Wellbeing Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and sign up to our monthly newsletter. Links are in the show notes. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast so that we can keep spreading the word about mental health and well-being in our communities together. Until next time, be well. Be well.